Hey everyone, and welcome to The Rational Republican, a podcast where we look at complex issues facing us here in Oregon and around the nation. We'll try to address issues from a nonpartisan perspective and view our disagreements through a lens of respect rather than tribalism or divisiveness. I'm James Ball. This is Nick Perlosky. Hey listeners, how we doing? Today's podcast is brought to you by ProLift Garage Doors. ProLift is your one-stop shop for residential and small commercial garage doors from openers, springs, and rollers to full reinstalls. They offer same-day service on all garage door repairs with no extra charge for evenings or weekends. Serving the greater Portland metro area, call today and set up your free estimate at 503-558-6349 or at proliftdoors.com slash Portland. Again, that's 503 558 6349 or slash Portland. On this episode of the podcast, we are honored to welcome Jim Fitzhenry. Jim is a uh, local businessman who has some pretty extensive experience in politics. He worked in the George H.W. Bush White House and also for Senator Mark Hatfield back in the day. So, uh, Jim, welcome to the podcast. Uh, thank you. Thank you, James. One note, we are doing this masked. Um, Jim is going to see his elderly mother at some point, and so we want to make sure that we are socially distanced and masked up. So if it seems a little muffled, um, that's why. So the listeners have to listen to less of us. You're yes. welcome, listeners. So, <laughs> Jim, why don't we start out if you just give a little two-minute bio about who you are and your experience in politics and... Go yeah, ahead. happy to. Uh, so I'm uh, an Oregon product, um, uh, raised and educated in Oregon, and raised politically in Oregon at a time when Republicans really were the dominant uh, force in the state. I uh, had a chance to get to know Clay Myers and ultimately became a deputy state treasurer for him when Clay was uh, fi- finishing up his last term as state treasurer, uh, carried over to work with Bill Rutherford for a little bit. Uh, you might remember that Clay uh, was a two-term Secretary of State and two-term State uh, Treasurer, uh, the longest-serving um, elected official as a Republican in the state. After that, um, after I graduated from law school and business school, had an opportunity to join Senator Hatfield's staff in Washington, D.C. I had worked for him on his campaigns while a student, uh, worked on the legislative staff uh, and was his legislative director and legal counsel uh, in the U.S. Senate uh, for five years and then had an opportunity uh, to join uh, President Bush's uh, White House staff. I worked in the Office of Cabinet Affairs uh, and the Office of Policy Development for about three years until uh, the president lost, unfortunately. Uh, I decided to return home and then uh, jump with both feet into the private sector. Very cool. Wonderful. We're glad you did. Uh, so what what was it like to be a part of Republican campaigns and officeholders that win. Like, this is so foreign to us. I'll I'll tell you, it was, and you can talk to others around that have had that experience. I had mentioned elsewhere that, um, you know, when I was a staffer in the Senate, uh, Mark Hatfield and Bob Packwood were two senior Republicans uh, in the Senate, not just in Oregon, but I mean, Senator Packwood was chairman of the Senate Finance Committee. Senator Hatfield, when Republicans had majority, was chairman of the Senate Appropriations Committee, as you know. And there was a time when Congressman Al Ullman, before he lost, was chairman of the House Ways and Means Committee. Had Al Ullman not lost, the Oregon would have been the only state uh, in history to have had a chairman of the Senate Appropriations Committee, chairman of the Senate Finance Committee, and chairman of the the House Ways and Means Committee. That would have been quite a trifecta. But it spoke to the... um, to the influence that Oregon had had politically, and they were at the top of a pyramid 
that was filled with uh, very distinguished men and women who serve Norma Paulus and Dave Fronmeyer um, are, are, are two that come to mind and, and many, many others. There was a sort of generation of what I would call center-right, uh, moderate Republicans um, at a time when throughout the West, uh, Republicans had strong influence in politics on the West. In fact, even uh, Scoop Jackson, the senator from the state of Washington, was more conservative than a lot of Republicans were. So there was a mm -hmm. different uh, – I think it came out of – a different time as the West and particularly Oregon was growing with uh, timber being a sort of a dominant influence. You had um, just uh, uh, Rep Republicans control the legislature. They control the government. They are the ones through Tom McCall that that really initiated some very innovative laws like the beach bill and the bottle bill. Um, it really was a uh, it was a golden age for Republican influence in the state. And, and I must say. I have not been proud of state government or how it's been run since that time. You know, it's really interesting. There is a narrative, I'm sure you're aware, throughout the Republican Party here in Oregon that if we only nominated a true conservative, in air quotes, that they could win statewide or they could win um, a senator or Congress or or one of those bigger seats. But then they talk about the glory days of Mark Hatfield and Bob Packwood and those guys were all moderates. I mean, Bob Packwood famously was pro-choice you know, back in the seventies. You know, this is Oregon has not ever had a quote unquote true conservative Republican party that actually won anything. So yeah, that's right. Um, and I think it's important to keep that in mind. Historically, there's never been a time when, um, sort of, uh, Texas style Republicanism, was effective in the state, um, in spite of many, you know, Republican members desire to make it so it has, it, Oregon has never had that style of Republicanism and it's never frankly, you know, worked, uh, very effectively. Um, so that's, you know, so I, not to get too nostalgic here because the world <laughs> and the times have changed since then. Um, it was a, it was a wonderful time, but our focus now is how do you, um, recreate uh, the Republican uh, approach to take advantage of the times in which we live, where voters are different. Uh, voter registration is dramatically different now. Uh, we've got, unfortunately, I think brand issues with regard to um, what the Republican Party stands for. Now, as a parent uh, of a 19-year-old, uh, I'm certainly aware of who, who tends to be you know, moderate right, uh, and yet um, none of his peers uh, necessarily are automatically attracted to the brand as they see republicanisms, and so republicanism. And so, um, when that wasn't the case, you know, thirty years ago. So, part of the theme that many of us are still focused on is how can we restore republican thought and republican policies. Uh, back into uh, particularly the state. I think we can talk about national politics if you want to a little bit later on. But I think everyone that I talk to would agree that the consequence of one party rule um, where taxes and spending has gone up exponentially and yet the quality of life and the benefits that have been provided to the citizens here are not nearly um, representative of the sacrifices we've had to make. Like I said, I, it's been a long time, I think, since people have been truly pleased or proud of how the state has been run. And I, we're looking for opportunities to change that. So I, uh, I'll ask a question. Uh, I think I, I will be tipping my hand, which, which way I would answer this question and how I'm going to ask it. 
we, I think all three of us at this table agree that, uh, center right is the way to go. That, that's, there, there's room to be conservative and fiscally responsible while alienating the, the most far right voices. Uh, do you feel that we are, uh, as Oregonians with the number of Democrats, with the number of independents, the number of, uh, non-affiliated voters, NAVs, do you feel that we are, we as Republicans are forced to kind of be, you know, moderate, you know, less conservative versions of ourselves? Or do you believe that here in Oregon, being a, a, a moderate center-right Republican is, is actually a way to advance forward and make very solid, good, progressive policy that can even be an example for, for the other states in the nation. I happen to think, and I came from a time, uh, that that's, it's both good politics, uh, and good policy. You know, one of the, uh, one of the realities is, um, you know, I came from a time when, um, Republicans were used to winning, to your point. Mm-hmm. Um, I think there has been a debate, and out of understandable frustration with a, with the trends in the state and who has been elected and the policies being pursued, tends to fuel a more conservative response as an answer to that. Um, and, the problem is I, I am probably less interested in the purity of my ideology mm-hmm. than as a, in the context of being a Republican than I am about policies that can win. Um, it doesn't, for me, provide any solace to know that I have been ideologically pure on any one mm-hmm. particular issue and find myself to be in the policy arena completely irrelevant. And, and I think that has been the challenge of Republicans and, frankly, the Republican Party. I, I will say... Uh, as a consequence of, of the sort of independence that Oregon has had within Republicanism as well is the party has never been a dominant force. One didn't need the blessings of the party to be successful in elective office. Uh, that may not be as true in other states. Uh, and I, and I think of Mark Hatfield. Uh, Mark Hatfield developed his own organization. Um, I think Bob Packwood to some degree, you know, did as well. And so there is, um, the challenges of the party as an apparatus of the Oregon state party as an apparatus of whether it can, whether it needs to grow to a level of relevance to facilitate good candidates or whether there are other avenues by which young, you know, uh, people like you two, uh, interested in elective office, uh, can pursue, um, elective office without the blessings of the party. You know, as a recently vanquished candidate for state legislature, strong second place, strong second place. <laughs> um, I've done I've done a lot of soul searching on this, and again, we mentioned before the podcast talking with Alan Alley. You know, I've been helping them out with their podcast and their their radio show. Um, I'm really interested to dig into the 2020 election results, the official ones, precinct level data, because. My thought as I was running for office was, or my, my theory was, if I can be a moderate, the, the, the far right folks are going to vote for me anyway, because I'm more conservative than the Democrat. And if I can pick off some of those independents or non-affiliates or even, you know, right-leaning Democrats, you know, I might be able to outperform as, as a moderate. And that would, that was my theory. Um, the trick is if you're a moderate Republican, you need those moderate Democrats to actually pull the trigger and vote for you. You know, you, you need to get credit for being a moderate. Uh, you're all your, what I experienced, I got exactly the percentage that I would have expected if I had not run a campaign, if I had just put an R by my name. Cause it, and that was a little disappointing, but at the same time, 
it, it just kind of shows, and this is Southwest Portland. And so this is a very democratic area. So it's not like this may not be representative of the state in general, but in this district, D's voted D, R's voted R, and non-affiliateds and independents voted pretty much their leanings. There was no cross-party anything. And and I don't know, maybe maybe if I'd run the campaign differently, who knows? Who knows? You can, you know, war game this to death. But there are two seats on the Oregon coast that were democratically held that we won, that Republicans won. Forget about Bend. We lost a seat in Bend, but we won two on the coast. And so... In a Donald Trump re-election year where turnout on both sides was incredibly high, Republicans picked up a seat in the legislature in the House. But, well, two seats that, like, picked up two and then lost one. So I'm really curious to dig into the demographics and try to figure out, because to your point, you know, I'm less concerned about being morally correct than I am or being, you know, policy correct than I am winning elections because it's about that first vote. It's about the the vote for the speaker. And I'm really curious to try to dig in and and why, you know, those seats on the on the coast, which have been democratically held for a while, flipped. But me and the metro area couldn't do better than the exact percentage of Republicans. I think think there are some fascinating lessons that come from those two races. And it also ties into the national trend that we've seen where Republicans may be picking up uh, a plus 11 seats in the House Mm -hmm. nationally. And it also, to to deal with the phenomenon of this split ticket voting, if you look at uh, if you look at Maine, for example, that went strongly for Joe Biden, but Susan Collin won mm-hmm. ultimately by quite a comfortable margin. Uh, so th- under, and, and there are some themes, I think, out of the race nationally and out of Oregon that are actually quite encouraging. Um, I think it, the, the question now is how can you, I- how do you best identify those and then extrapolate that into a strategy? So I, you know, the whole reason I'm involved in politics is because I've seen it because ideas matter, because policies matter. They affect people's lives. Um, they certainly affect your pocketbook. Um, so I happen to think one of the, one of the dominating forces in this election was a sense of economic insecurity. That all of a sudden, when you get to first principles, if you're worried about putting food on the table in a time when the economy has been shut down due to uh, COVID and due to the governor's uh, uh, responses to it, when there's insecurity economically, all of a sudden voters start getting, uh, it's about the economy. And, and I happen to think that when you're out on the Oregon coast, as an example, if you've got good candidates, they're the, the criteria that you use to vote is a little bit, was a little bit different in this case. Nationally, I really do believe that it was the economy. I mean, the Donald Trump, for all of his foibles and uh, uh, problems of which they are substantial, <laughs> had the second highest vote total in the history of our nation. Almost, what, 72 million votes. One of, I think, a major factor was a sense of economic unease and the belief that Republicans are still better stewards of the economy. Um, I, I certainly, I also believe that in Oregon since, you know, we're seeing our taxes constantly increasing, but for no benefit. So, uh, James, I, I'd love to f- have you give us the results of what you find <laughs> out in those two races because they don't have to be isolated examples. Yeah. And now, it's, it's- now voter trends, you know, the, the part of the problem, what makes this fascinating is that blue, you know, Oregon's a two tier state. I mean, we, we talk about, I'm sure the people in Eastern Oregon are pretty sick about hearing about Oregon's a blue state. Well, you go 
on the other side of the mountains, it's not. Yeah. Um, there's a complete different sensibility over there. And I have to go over there just to breathe a little oxygen now and again. <laughs> um, you know, so you are seeing a blue, the, the, the challenge has been in this, this northern Willamette Valley where it started in Multnomah County. It certainly moved into Washington County. Now it's moving into Clackamas County and Benton County and slowly is sort of permeating out. And, uh, in terms of voter registration with, in, with non-affiliated number being the largest, fastest growing component of the voters out there. So all that are factors into your point when, in your race, which is if you run and don't spend a dime and put an R by your name, you're going to get 42%, 43% of the vote, period. The mm-hmm. battle is on the margins. Yep. On how do you, you know, right? And, and that's really where the hard work comes. And it's interesting to see two Republicans take on and beat Democrats on those two coastal districts. I think that's a trend that can happen elsewhere. I certainly think voters in Oregon are about as frustrated, uh, as you can get right now. Uh, and I don't think it's going to get any better. Uh, those two races were great. I, I, we mentioned Alex Garlados, uh, prior to us starting recording. I, he made a, a real run for a, a 32 year incumbent, Peter mm-hmm. Fazio in CD4. I, I think there were a lot of really close races. Shelly Bossert Davis's sister, mm-hmm. uh, down in close. Eugene was, was a really close race. Uh, I'd be curious for your thoughts. Um, I, I, I see Republican politics in Oregon as kind of a, a chicken and egg problem in the, in the days in which you kind of cut your teeth, there were there were a number of fantastically powerful men and women uh, elected to office. They had staffs, they had support groups, they had volunteers, they had donors. We are in a situation now where, I mean, Newt Bueller had I think eighteen or nineteen million dollars in his race for governor last year, and he absolutely could have been. Uh, a leading, you know, unifying figure for Republicans all up and down the ballot. He did not win his race. And without, I think, a, a, a very visible, very prominent figure like that, you don't have kind of the rest of those trickle down effects. And without the rest of those trickle down effects, you don't have somebody that can run for a city council seat. You don't have somebody that can cut checks of substantial amount to, you know, six or eight different house candidates, something like that. How do you see kind of, Getting around, you know, where is the point at which you start that to try to start the cycle so you can get more candidates elected, so you can have more staff, so you can have more volunteers, so you can have more future candidates? So I think this speaks to one of the maybe weaknesses of the of the party infrastructure where uh, or the lack of infrastructure for candidates. Um, The party doesn't really have a lot of that assistance that can be provided necessarily. And so candidates, as they advance, end up building their own organizations out of necessity. And And then when you lose uh, an election, that all falls apart. And you've got to start (laughs) over again, right? And so, and typically those that have won haven't been beholden to the party necessarily because the party wasn't, they weren't the group, right, uh, that assisted in the election. You develop your own. And, and, you know, you're right. It is... There's a couple of challenges now, obviously, with your running when people are, are counting voter registration. A lot of people are fatigued. You know, they don't like losing. They, you know, and as you well know, um, this is a sacrifice. This is a not, um, an easy topic to be willing to run for office, to put yourself out there and to work the way you have to work as, as you guys have done is not a cavalier endeavor. A lot of people have come to a different determination as a Republican than you did and decided, 
I'm going to take a pass. So part of this issue is, I, I have to say, you have to have compelling candidates. You have to have candidates that are qualified. You have to have candidates that are articulate. You have to have candidates that have a feel for politics. I think there's an opportunity for, we, we had in another context this morning, a discussion of where we could create um, or recreate um, a candidate institute to help um, train and develop uh, young candidates that have the energy and the motivation to be that kind of compelling candidate. To your ultimate question, which is how do you, how early do you need to start developing your own network? It, it you start as early as you can, and you know it's got to be a natural outgrowth of how you're living your life as well in the communities that you're in, that you're involved in other activities and other groups and other associations. Uh, and you start that now. It is, um, it is a challenging endeavor. And it, I think it's one of the reasons that we haven't seen as many compelling candidates, um, as we need to have. And I think one of the missions for Republicans in Oregon, uh, is to help identify and cultivate, uh, as you two are certainly top of the list, uh, candidates that are certainly worthy of a vote. And I see, we kind of mentioned that this morning in different contexts. Like you said, there is the organization. I think a candidate training is part of it, but I think there's also just needs to be an organization where you can go to be a part and you can be celebrated and you can be supported. And in my mind, I feel like that should be the Oregon Republican Party. Like that should, that should be what the party does is recruit candidates and have a place for them to, again, go and be celebrated for their, for that sacrifice. And I, I don't see that. I see dozens of empty seats, empty slots on our statewide legislative race. And, you know, you were kind of mentioning before this, before we start turned on the, the mics, focusing on like a race or two races that are winnable. Yes and no. <laughs> um, on one hand, Yes, put your resources in a few places that you think you can win. On another, on the other side, and this is, so we had Dr. Reynolds on, who again was, was my opponent who ended up winning the seat here in District 36. And one of the things she mentioned was how many postcards she wrote, how many phone calls she made, how many doors she knocked before COVID, COVID shut everything down. And you know what? She was doing all that here in District 36 where she was a, she was a shoe in. If I had not been on the ballot, she would have been, I mean, potentially would have been writing postcards and making phone calls and knocking doors in a different district, maybe one of those coast districts. So I think there is value to having, to putting your resources in a few places where you can win. But also I think, I think, and this is what I think that the party should be doing is get a name in every slot, have every race be contested and have a halfway decent candidate who has a voter pamphlet statement and a website and palm cards and will go to things and give a speech. And what I think what there, I think that's two, there's two prongs to that approach of winning elections. I agree, James. Um, the, lot, the, the, no, but the, <laughs> cha the challenge right now with the fatigue over decades of, I mean, let's understand the current environment in which we live. Unfortunately, at the moment, you have the Oregon legislature uh, close to super majorities for Democrats. Uh, it is uh, typically discussed that um, it, with with the exception of Dennis Richardson, uh, God rest his soul, uh, the likelihood of a Republican being elected statewide. Uh, is very, very slim. And that has been, and, and the, and the view has been, well, at some point, this will all get bad enough 
that voters will switch. And we're always tagged with the sort of national uh, stories about, you know, Donald Trump or whoever it is on a, on an issue. And it has always been a near impossible task. So we find ourselves in an environment in Oregon that is very, very challenging. I, and, and as a consequence, there's just fatigue out there. People don't want to be precinct committee people. And the people mm-hmm. that do sometimes are not necessarily the people that, you know, they're the ones who are fueled by their ideology and they're not necessarily the people that are going to attract others you know, to, to become involved. And so my view had been um, what I called this was a SEAL Team 6 approach to elections in Oregon where now na- and, and fundamentally you need to have candidates, credible candidates in every race. Absolutely agree. And including statewide races, nonetheless, I think in addition to that, uh, understanding the math of voter registration in Oregon and also being tactical, having a, a special ops focus on certain races, whether that's local races, whether that's metro, whether that's a, a mayoral race, whether that's a city council, whether that's a county council, is identifying where – and this is – the challenge really here is in the northern Willamette Valley, mm-hmm. which is so dominant in so many ways, uh, much to the irritation of folks on the other side of the mountains – um, identify what a, what a, an office is in the next cycle, in two years from now, and 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 try to help promote um, a Republican in those races. So, and I think those two House races on the Oregon coast are encouraging signs that this can happen again. Uh, and I would love to see. And so, I don't disagree with you, James. I'm I am now interested. I can't fix the overall problem, so maybe I need to bear down on a tactical goal, help others develop resources to that particular race and win it and build on that beachhead. So I, if you had your druthers, uh, obviously in 2022 here in Oregon, the governor's race is up. And I, I think we'd all like to say, of course, we'd like to see a Republican governor, a good, you know, good Republican governor that we like win election here in Oregon. Other than that, if you had your druthers, is there one race that you personally would like to see a Republican fill? A particular state house or state senate seat, a, a city council seat or a metro seat here in Portland, some, you know, a, a city commissioner somewhere, county commissioner in Clackamas or Washington County? You know, I've given up on the city of Portland. Uh, I'm happily a resident of unincorporated Washington County. Um, so Must I'll, be nice. I'll, I'll, <laughs> yeah, I'll, I'll walk away from that. Um, I am a, I'm a son of Washington County. Uh, I've seen trends in Washington County as one of the fastest growing counties in the state politically that are not necessarily helpful on the, on the county council level. Um, I'd like to, um, help more candidates like, uh, Bob Terry. Unfortunately, he didn't, he wasn't successful in his race. Um, there are some legislative races in the Washington County area. Um, that uh, Rich Vile is a longtime friend of mine. Had been a, a, a served well as a Republican, friend of the pod. Oh uh, yeah, he's we've, had, we've had him on. <laughs> and, and as you know, he's a he's a deep thinker about a lot of of issues. But when it comes to retail politics, he'll be the first to tell you in his district when he showed up by an R by his name, 
in many cases, that was just the end of the story. That, that's the kind of battlefront that we're now dealing with. On the, on the national side, besides the, the governor's race, and we have to find and identify a credible candidate truly, because I think there's a level of frustration right now that I've never seen before. By the way, as an aside, and maybe a lot of listeners have thoughts like this, the number of peers of mine that are seriously looking at moving out of the state mm-hmm. with their businesses, they're going to vote with their feet. They're done, right? They're, they are done. The $7 billion proposal for the Metro ballot measure that failed is coming again in a different format. There are more taxes coming your way that will be obscene. Uh, and that certainly if you've got a climate change agenda in the state, there will be taxes associated with that. So we're dealing with forces where the electorate is more frustrated all the time. Their taxes are growing exponentially. The quality of services and the extent of those services are not growing commensurately. The state is a bit of a mess and it's getting more expensive to live here. And so finding a candidate for governor, and I frankly would like to run a candidate for secretary of state. I think that would also be a a key race. The other thing that they're doing is they're raising taxes on the wealthy. It's not just, it's not a tax on everyone. If they taxed everyone, they'd soon get into trouble and start losing, losing votes. But if you only tax the rich, the taxer, you know, that's a, a smaller group of people. And if they leave the state, you know, they were voting Republican anyway. And so you can keep your power. But anyway, that was, uh, <laughs> the other thing I was going to say is, uh, we're, we're recording this on December 4th and, um, Sam Carpenter, former gubernatorial candidate, uh, former just, everything just, candidate. Former everything <laughs> candidate um, just posted a 27-minute video on his website <laughs> announcing that he's leaving. He's leaving Oregon, and so I was like, "Dude, this isn't a to airport what state. We should warn them. This isn't an airport. You don't need to announce your departure." But <laughs> in any yeah. case, for every Sam Carpenter that feels the need to post a 27-minute video explaining why he's leaving Oregon, there are dozens that don't feel the need to uh, well, I mean, to announce his departure. Anecdotally, one of the friends that, we, uh, you know, when you could get together, uh, we would, we played poker pretty frequently. And one of our friends uh, was, she was, she was a bartender, worked for a whiskey distillery. And she says, I, I'm about to move to Austin because I, I, I cannot live in Oregon. I, my businesses have shut down and I cannot get unemployment because the unemployment is so screwed up. And I think she is endemic of, Tens of thousands of individuals in across the state of Oregon, and honestly, frankly, especially here in Portland, that's so. Uh, there's a lot of bars, there's a lot of restaurants, there's a lot of breweries, and, and, and we have a, you know, in the middle of a pandemic, I think a lot of businesses are going to make the the work from home. That's ah, oh, we started this in March. It's just going to be temporary. I think a lot of places are going to start realizing that's permanent. And if you are as you could be as liberal as they come, but if you're a Facebook employee, employee in Palo Alto or downtown San Francisco or something, and they're going to pay you three hundred, four hundred thousand dollars, and you can just move to Coeur d'Alene, Idaho, and do your job from there for a tenth as much to live, there's a number of people who are going to start doing that, and that's going to be a serious problem for the low cost red states of the country. You know, you only have to leave Oregon so many times to realize that the economic base that we have here is so dramatically smaller than the Seattle area, than the Bay mm. area, than Texas, than anywhere else, right? There are not a lot of uh, rich people to, you know, to tax here. Um, and uh, contrasted to young guys like you who are wanting to invest your time and your energy to be involved for the purpose of making this state better, there are a whole host of people that aren't making that decision and are just silently going to leave. 
Mm-hmm. Um, there's a reason why Boise is hot, hot, hot. Mm-hmm. Why Idaho is growing exponentially. Why Salt Lake City is growing exponentially. Why people are moving to Texas by the droves. While, why people want their tax domicile in Nevada or Wyoming. No one is looking really to come here for the tax benefits. If you're coming out of the Bay Area, Ben looks pretty good because of it's nice. Bend is yeah. nice. Bend, bend is nice. <laughs> but I mean, you know, there are from. there are trends at work here that are destructive to the state of Oregon that I know and love. And so, I, as listeners to this podcast know, I, I'm a, a semi a Texan. I'm an Oregonian and a Texan and a Pittsburgher, depending on the day of the week and which and way the DC wind is blowing. And, and DC and, and Michigan or, and Corvallis, <laughs> all kinds of and, yeah. And I'm wearing my Beaver's mask as we speak. Uh, so I, I was in Texas last in October and. Uh, in Austin, as my dad was driving me to the airport to fly back up here, we were talking about uh, Tesla had just announced their second gigafactory is being built there in Austin. Apple had just built a massive campus with 20 or 25,000 jobs. We we drove by a, a, a new factory that was being built, and dad didn't even know which one it was. He said, there's one of four or five companies that just announced they were moving here. I can't remember which one that was, but it's one of them. And uh, just uh, yesterday or two days ago, uh, Hewlett Packard Enterprises announced they're moving from California down to Houston. And Greg Abbott, the governor of Texas, was, you know, all over Twitter about that because, you know, why would you not be? That's tens of thousands, hundreds of thousands of jobs if you count, you know, trickle down. And I, I sit here and I wonder, that. like, yeah, why We're doesn't Kate that. Brown get out and, and get companies to move her in? The answer is obvious. It's because we can't. James is a former, uh, uh, employee at, at Intel. Um, Clay Myers was one of those state officials that actively, you know, solicited Intel to locate in Oregon. And yes, they offered deferred uh, property taxes as an incentive. The result of which, of course, is that Intel's largest facility by square footage is in Oregon. It's not Arizona. It's not New Mexico. It's nowhere else. And that's a huge deal. I don't. I can't think of the last time there was a concerted recruitment effort to bring industry back in. The headlines are efforts to stop industry because they're not the right type of industry. Uh, we do not have, and I own a manufacturing company, uh, Oregon really is a collection of smaller businesses. And they're getting hit very hard right now. And so um, I'll... Many of us are evaluating our options for where we, in, in the interest of our employees and their families, where we relocate to. So, I, I, you know, talk about the list of uh, initiatives that could be started on day one for a Republican sort of controlled state. That would be one of them. I, I worked for Rick Perry for a brief period when I was in Texas, and he put up billboards. He went to New York. He went to Chicago. He went to Los Angeles and put up billboards and said, are you sick of paying these high taxes? Come to Texas. And people would do it. And it's just I, – it's insane that there's no effort to, to do that here in Oregon and, because and, we don't have the policy. And you need an ecosystem. And it develops yeah. an ecosystem that attracts others. An interesting comment from a, a, a guy I met with who's in private equity and looking at investments for small companies. He's based in Seattle. He pretty much says, I fly over Portland. Hmm. I, I'm in Seattle. I'm in the Bay Area. I'm in Southern California. I'm elsewhere. But usually there's not enough compelling companies here. And it, and it again, this is these are the reasons why – uh, Republican approaches to business, to governing are important and why we have, why the state and why citizens here have been not well served for decades. And unfortunately, unless we can help turn the tide, uh, it's going to get worse. 
I think to your point earlier, there's very little incentive for them to change, though. I think things need to get bad enough. Like, the, 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 we're building a house of cards here, and until it collapses, I don't think we're going to... I mean, the, and this is just sort of the the democratic way of... Big D democratic way of governing is do what you can while you can and worry about the consequences later. I mean, this is how they, they do PERS. This is how they do... This is taxing the rich. You know, you tax the rich to get your to get your pound of flesh, and then they all leave... And it doesn't matter if they all leave because you've already got your, your taxes. And I think that the 75, 80% of people who are not in that top tax bracket, they continue voting Democrat because they get all of these services and they don't have to pay for them, at least for now, until the whole thing falls apart by everybody leaving the state. It's very easy to leave the state. And especially if you're wealthy, you just <laughs> change your address. You know, I'm sure, with Alan Alley on this show, I'm sure you've had con conversations about the, the magnitude of the unfunded liability for Oregon's public employee retirement system. Yeah, um, yeah. Sadly, Oregon is not the only example of states that are right now technically bankrupt. If you factor in the unfunded liability, probably led by... Uh, probably led by Illinois, but Oregon has, what, at least a $12 billion unfunded liability with an economy that is largely comprised of medium to smaller businesses, not an active program to, to, to attract, nor the right tax structure to attract industry here at, to the degree to which I think we could. And that's a recipe for some, you know, to your point, and, and you have people here um, who don't have the means to be flexible as to where they go. Or look, yeah. I'm an Oregonian. I love this place. Uh, I'm not, I don't want to be pushed out. Um, I want to stay here and help and help fix it. Uh, but the problems that we're dealing with are growing in magnitude. And so James, I hope that, you know, that, that, that thinking, which is when it gets bad enough, people will change their votes. I hope it doesn't get I, to that, that point. That's almost a burn the house down approach. I hope and it I, never, and like, I'm hoping it doesn't because it could get a whole lot worse. And, uh, and, and I, and I'll do respect to James and I, uh, listeners have, we, you had asked, you know, what kind of feedback we got on these podcasts. This is the neg the most negative feedback is that James and I just agree on everything. So listeners, here we go. James and I are about to disagree. <laughs> I think if you say, I, I, I'm hoping that it gets bad enough that, you know, people I can not say that. I, or, think, I think it may get to the, like, I think that is the only thing that's going to change it. Okay. Is if it gets bad enough. Fair. I don't hope it gets bad enough. I hope that we can Fair. turn the ship around, but the, I, the way that they're doing it. And I, and, and I, I, if it gets to that point, I hope that you're right, that, you know, people start – that, frankly, we as Republicans start putting forward serious, credible candidates who can earn the votes of independents and center-right Democrats. It's not just, why don't these people vote for us time after time? We, we got to put somebody in front of them that's worth voting for. But I don't think that there is a bad enough. I think you beg the question when you say if it gets bad enough. I don't think that it is. I think that the the – Situations that we're in that cre have created the problems that we see from the Kate Browns and the Tina Kotex and the Joanne Hardesty's and the Sarah Ayanarones, even though she lost this time, I'm sure she's going to be our mayor again. I, I don't think that there, there's enough critical mass of voters there that just believe the solution to the problems that they've created is to just keep letting them have the reins. And so I, for me, it's not a matter of will it get bad enough? I, for me, it's, it's a matter of uh, the onus is on us. The onus is on real, responsible, adult Republicans to put forward credible candidates who can communicate sound, conscionable policies 
Forget about abortion. Forget about denying climate. You know, any of the stupid stuff that Republicans do on the far right. Obviously, Donald Trump is not going to be a hindrance anymore. But I mean, well, he's talking about running in 2024. I'm, I'm, so that's another topic. That's, that's a whole, that's a whole other <laughs> podcast. On, carry on. Uh, but, but I mean, I, 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 frankly, I think you're begging the question when you say there's a bad enough because, because I don't believe there is. I think well, Oregon is stuck in this downward spiral and something has to change and it's got to be on our side of the aisle. Well, see, I, I, and this is okay. I'll, I'll go ahead and disagree with you. Um, <laughs> I'm a capitalist. And part of the capitalist mentality is everyone is inherently selfish and greedy. And you use those, those things to build up this, this economy and you have the protections allowed by the government, but it's still capitalism is that each individual person is trying to make the best thing for themselves. And that creates this economy. And, and that like selfishness and greed is really kind of at the core of, of, Capitalism, and you you agree to that that that's how people naturally are, and then you use that to benefit society. I think that big D Democrats, especially here in Oregon, have figured out the code where they can get self interested, selfish, capitalistic people to vote Democratic because they tax somebody else. You can get all of these services, and we're going to make somebody else pay for it. That has been the democratic line for at least since I've been involved in politics. And as long as people keep buying into that, it's like, oh, I get free preschool, and somebody else pays for it. Oh, the cat tax, somebody else pays for it. And you continue that long enough, people are going to, oh, I get all this free stuff, and oh, we're just going to, we're just going to, uh, Jim, Jim's going to pay for it because he owns a business and he makes, I don't know, a ton of money. Thanks, and- Jim. <laughs> yeah, yeah. It's a lot of identity politics, is it not? And yeah. I think I'm at a point now where I'm just looking for adults in the room, right? I, I'm, um, I have certainly friends that are, are Democrats. And, uh, you know, there was a time when you had to know how to compromise on, on legislation, on politics, right? Um, and that's more important now than ever. Um, unfortunately, the consequence of a one party rule is you're seeing is sort of leading the way with its own progressive wing. Uh, and a lot of them are elected in the, into the legislature. And so ideas and policies that would have been laughed at five years ago are now legislative priorities, right? Um, and so this, this is starting to get, um, even more consequential given where we're at economically because of COVID. And so if the legislature comes in with the budget that, um, with the budget shortfall it may have and still wants to pursue policies that are going to require more taxes, that's just not a good combination, right? And I, and I'm really concerned that there are not adults in the room that actually know how to run. Uh, the legislature. So get ready for more mischief. Well, and it, it's, it's ironic that you say that I, because uh, you're absolutely right. The, uh, right after I moved here, I, I, I am not a native Oregonian. I moved here in 2015, but I, my wife is from here and my friends are from here. I, I obviously immediately fell in love with it. And I, I tried to read up as much as I could about the history of the state. And the first, the, the first at least white people that came here were, uh, from John Jacob Astor. That's why Astoria is named Astor. It was a, it was a commercial expedition. He wanted a waypoint between the East Coast and Asia when he was trading his furs. The people who came to Portland tried to make it in the San Francisco gold rush and found a way to, to ship and, you know, 
there were the, obviously timber was a massive industry. Wildlife was a massive industry. Farming was massive. And the whole, the, even, even in Portland, the state of Oregon and the, the city of Portland were founded by the, the people who are still here, the, the small business owners, the industrious individuals, not the bigger companies, not, uh, you know, a person who's a cog in the wheel for a company that has 50 or 100,000 employees. And we've, we've lost that way. We've lost the ability to, to focus on the, the needs and wants of that community. I, I think it would be great if you could have Apple and Tesla and Facebook and, and Amazon moving here instead of, frankly, the red states of the country. But we don't have that capability. That, that is our competitive advantage is Portland is, you know, probably after Long Beach and Seattle, Tacoma, it's got to be the third largest port on the West Coast. There's so much fishing that goes on on the coast. The Columbia is is absolutely incredible. We have some of the we're drinking it right now. We have some of the best <laughs> wine in the world here in the Willamette Valley, and we just we don't take advantage of of the resources that we've got here in Oregon, and it's it's to our detriment. It's just it's sad to see. Yeah. It is. Well, we are just about out of time. So, uh, Jim, one of the things that we like to do with our guests before we we let them go is uh, ask the question. Who is your favorite Republican? Well, I, I have to say, um, as a as a always loyal staffer to Senator Mark Hatfield, my favorite Republican is Mark Hatfield. Uh, as a quality of, uh, and I and I miss him every day. Um, as a quality of a person, uh, the courage uh, that he brought to uh, that job. Um, I've got some wonderful stories about sort of lessons that I've learned um, from him as a, as a moderate Republican who saw the party moving further right. Some incredible stories. So I, my favorite Republican is absolutely uh, Mark Hatfield, followed very closely by George H.W. Bush, my other, my other boss. That's a follow-up podcast if I've ever heard one right there. <laughs> stories from Mark and George. <laughs> Great. Well, Jim, thank you again for coming on the show and uh, wish you the best. And listeners, we will talk to you next time. Thanks, guys. Thanks for listening to the Rational Republican Podcast. Your hosts are James Ball and Nick Perlosky. The show today is brought to you by ProLift Garage Doors of Portland, serving the greater Portland metro area for all your garage door installation and repair needs. If you'd like to get in touch with the show, you can email us at james at jamesaball.com or follow us on Facebook, Twitter, or Instagram. You can find our episodes at jamesaball.com, Apple Podcasts, Google Play, or wherever you find your podcasts.